This is an ABC podcast. No ia e Māori. Hello Olengeta and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. And I'm your host, Eggy Tupou, here for your Tuesday morning. Uh, what's on the show today? China's continued influence in the Pacific. Uh, the fight against deep sea mining continues. And high profile officials are making their way into our very own Pacific backyard. More on that in the show. And for any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. Just type ABC Pacific Beat in your search engine and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, thank you for tuning in to our program this morning. I'm Aggie Dubong and this is Pacific Beat. While making headlines, a French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, is in New Caledonia for his first visit since three referendums were held to determine whether the archipelago wants independence from France. Pro-independence parties boycotted the final vote in 20 to 21 uh, because of the COVID pandemic and refused to recognise the result, which overwhelmingly rejected independence, albeit with just a 40% voter turnout. Mr Macron is due to head to the Indigenous Canuck Customary Senate in Newville for an official customary welcome, but pro-independence parties have said the President is not welcome in a statement released on Sunday. The FLNKS, which is an alliance of pro-independence political parties, is planning protests and wants all parties to boycott bilateral discussions on the territory's future. But that is not the only reason for Mr Macron's visit. So joining us live to discuss the latest is New Caledonian political science researcher and historian Ismet Gutovic. With that, I say welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ismet, for joining us. I'd like to know, what's the mood on the ground about the President's visit? Well, the the mood is is a very great expectation from what the French President will announce uh, here on both sides because we are in the middle of uh, political negotiation after the three referendum, as you mentioned. And secondly, because, (coughs) how I will say it, uh, we need money. Uh, uh, Our government has difficulties this year to face uh, the need of uh, social money for uh, health, for instance. So uh, we we need uh, to have money for France and our government ask uh, the state for that. And third, um, our nickel industry, our our three factory are with difficulties because of the cost of energy power. So a lot of uh, discussion are held uh, to face the transformation of the energy used uh, by our factory in the direction of, let's say, roughly green energy, if it is possible. It sounds like there will definitely be a lot of discussion, Ismet, but is it likely he'll come up with some sort of plan on New Caledonia's future that's agreeable to all sides during this visit? Yes, that is exactly what the president says uh, arriving yesterday night at the airport. He says that he will find 
basis of political agreement. So he will meet with all political parties and settled settled the element of our future status, including the perspective of future auto-determination, but now the statute will be in the constitutional law of France because of the result of the three referendum and mostly because of the two first referendum. Though many may be welcoming him uh, to New Caledonia, what are maybe some of the pro-independence parties planning for his visit, though? Yes, the pro-independence party uh, will attend to the meeting, their leader will attend to the meeting with the president, but the party issues... um, information to uh, their people to wear the Kanak flag, you know, and a minority of um, uh, party committee says that uh, president is not welcome, but this is a minority. Uh, Globally, the president will be welcome the political uh, independence leader will talk with him and uh, independence people will be invited to wear the Kanak flag, which flag is already on public uh, monument, public building, buildings and uh, in New Caledonia, you know, it, mm. uh, along with the French flag. If we think about along talks, with different Thank you for that, Ismet. If we think about though talks on New Caledonia's future, is it the French government's belief though that the issue has actually been settled once and for all following the three votes? Uh, yes and no. You know, in the French constitution, all the French overseas territory can have an, an a referendum again. This is written, and the question is how and when we will use it again. But the other point of view that is shared commonly here is that if we don't reach an agreement, a real new agreement, the actual status of New Caledonia will keep on further and further. This statue is named Numea Agreement Status. And it is in the French constitution, and it is possible that the statues, if there is no agreement, keep on working, except on electoral uh, issues. That can be uh, resolved uh, apart. Why is it that he's being accompanied, though, by both pro-independence presidents, uh, Louis Mapo and Muay Thai Brotherson? I mean, will he go to Melanesia with both of them as well? Yes. Uh, we have to consider that the French Polynesian president is invited in Port Villa uh, end of the week for the independence uh, celebration, the anniversary of the independence celebration. And it is said that uh, he will meet 
with the French president. Our president uh, will go in Port Villa with the French president. It means that the association between the local uh, French territories government will be associated, uh, in fact, not only in words, with the uh, French state uh, politic in the Pacific. This is the, the image that the presence of the two presidents with the French president in Port Vila will show. But the two, the two presidents will don't, won't go to uh, Papua New Guinea. So has it been quite a mixed response, though, from the people of New Caledonia? Yes, the, we are quite used to have big um, political issues in New Caledonia for the worst and for the best. And these days, uh, political negotiations are held under the authority of the French uh, Ministry of Overseas Territory, Mr. Gérard Darmanin. These talks are on. They are not uh, concluded. And we expected to have a new talks at the end of August in Paris. So the um, President Macron came in the middle of these talks and maybe he will uh, settle, as I said and as he says, basis of uh, political agreement if possible. Ismet, can I ask, what is your hope overall with Macron's visit there to New Caledonia? As I, t- as I told you, a f- few considerations are to be held. In our nickel industry is very important because the, the health, the wealth of New Caledonia is based on tourism and nickel. So we need an agreement uh, for the nickel. And uh, on political uh, issues, let's say that I do hope that the French government will make easier for us Caledonians to reach an agreement. Because uh, the first thing that I, I feel is that the agreement m- must be between new Caledonians. Absolutely. I'm wondering, is there anything else on the president's agenda during his visit there to New Caledonia? Oh yes, uh, the president is going in the bush. To he will be he will meet with um, uh, people of a tribe on the east coast where the sea level is is higher each year, you know. And there is this, and he will meet with on the west coast uh, uh, with the with the farmer, and he will have talks with. Uh, uh, young people uh, down in the south, because the French government is involved in uh, with our university. So there is all issues on daily basis, and that the president will uh, talk to with uh, our authorities. Mm. Look, we just want to wish you all the best with the visit there from Mr. Macron. We thank you for your time this morning, Ismet. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. That was New Caledonian political science researcher and historian Ismet Kutovic here on Pacific Beat.
While there's plans to start deep-sea mining in the world's oceans have had a setback after UN's International Seabed Authority failed to adopt new regulations at a recent council meeting in Jamaica. The meeting has been shrouded by controversy with a complaint filed against the head of the authority, Michael Lodger. Pacific activist Joey Toe from the Pacific Network on Globalisation has been observing the meeting and he told ABC's Evan Wasuka that no mining should take place until regulations are finalised. Council members agree that no deep sea mining should take place in absence of regulation uh, and council members have also pushed for more time. Um, this really is where they've left off um, and you know it could be open to any interpretation where Sponsoring states or industry through sponsoring states could put a scope of work of application to commence deep sea mining. Again, this is in uh, again this is where there's no regulations adopted so far, uh, and we could see uh, more countries pushing to have regulations in place. So there are legal loop- loopholes. Um, and we hope um, this could be an ironed out uh, come this week when the Assembly uh, convenes the 28th session. At this 28th session, we expected to see high-level delegates travel in. The Cook Islands Prime Minister is expected in uh, Kingston for, for this uh, ISA Assembly, uh, where... Oh, Expected to see representatives, diplomats attend this assembly. Uh, One of the very important agendas that would be put before this assembly is the discussion of a precautionary pause or moratorium, which is pushed by Chile, Costa Rica, and and Vanuatu and other like-minded states uh, who think that we should have more time and there should be a precautionary pause imposed. Joey, you mentioned the two-year rule. Now that's about to lapse. What, where does that leave things in terms of uh, countries like Nauru who are seeking um, mining to start? I think for Nauru, you know, um, I mean, as as a, as a campaigner on the issue, I think it's important that regulations and the best international standards are in place before any country. It cannot be Nauru. I mean, it is not just Nauru, but any country putting a scope of work. I think we still need more um, grounding on the uh, the exploitation regulations, and you know, as a campaigner, it will be you know unjust of Nauru to put in a scope of work when there is no regulations in place. The door is open now, given the two-year rule has lapsed. Uh, and like I said, there are loopholes, legal loopholes. It will be interesting as to when when we adopt rules and when an application is put before the ISA Council um, and how um, parties will respond to that. Uh, taking into in, into consideration the Council is expected to meet in November at the end of this year, and that's continuing the exploitation regulations, and in March next year. So waiting now in March, um, there is a window period that, that anyone can put in a scope of work, but I think um, there needs to be proper, uh, there needs to be an adoption of regulations before anyone can uh, put in an application. Now, Joey, the Pacific Blue Line and PANG have co-signed a letter of complaint against the Secretary General of the ISA, Michael Lodge. Why has that happened? I think this is 
based on observations and from uh, international NGOs and other regional NGOs who um, observing these proceedings and rules continues to change um, when and where media is allowed to and not allowed to. Uh, there needs to be consistency. And this, this is serious matters and these are proceedings that, you know, the media should be accessing. Uh, it concerns the common heritage of all humankind. And it's important that other stakeholders, including the media, need to be uh, have access to these, these, these meetings. So there was a complaint lodged by PANG, the Pacific Blue Line and other, Greenpeace International and other partners, uh, highlighting the uh, lack of transparency uh, within the Secretariat. And we hope it, it's been lodged before Michael Lodge uh, and we hope there are some serious considerations. Joey Tal from the Pacific Network on Globalization in Kingston, Jamaica. He was speaking to ABC's Evan Wasuka. While a failed Balao media deal has revealed the inner workings of China's efforts to continue exerting their influence in the Pacific. Back in 2018, the Balao Media Group was set up in partnership with locals and backed by investors with ties to China's police and military, according to the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. The project's lead reporter, Bernadette Carrion, investigated the figures behind the group and joins us now to delve into the details. With that, I say welcome to the show, Bernadette. Um, good morning. Good morning. Uh, look, if you could just maybe explain a little bit more about the Palau Media Group and who was actually involved. Um, the Palau Media Group, as you have said, was was set up in 2018. Um, it was the media group was set up by the publisher of the oldest newspaper in Palau, which is Chabelau. And then it, it was also um, launched with uh, Overseas Chinese Big Data Group, which is a company that, as you said, um, that we found, that OCCRP um, found that works with universities and research institutes um, that has ties with Chinese military. And... Um, Another partner in the Palau Media Group is uh, a Chinese businessman, a longtime expat um, in Palau, which is also uh, a very good friend of the Chabela publisher, who is Hang Tian, or is popularly known as Hunter Tian. I want to know, though, with uh, one of the uh, founders of Palau Media Group, Uludong, did he not know that these Chinese investors had actual ties to, like, major Chinese national security institutes? Uh, when OCCRP spoke to Mr. Uludong, or when I spoke to Mr. Uludong, he doesn't seem to indicate that he knew the background of this Chinese company or the overseas Chinese big data group. In fact, when I talked to him, he couldn't remember the name and he referred to, to them as uh, friends from Shenzhen. How does the actual Palau Media Group provide an insight into China's foreign influence campaign? Um, can you repeat that question? Uh, how does the Palau Media Group actually provide some sort of insight into China's foreign influence campaign? Um, according to Mr. Oludong, um, the Palau Media Group was supposed uh, was is created or was supposed to be 
created and its intention was to be um, a hub of, of information and then it will in Palau and then it will gonna be it's gonna be bring news from across the Pacific to a Chinese audience. Mm. Uh, but they didn't actually last long. Why is that? I mean, is there an example of how uh, it influenced local media coverage? Um, it didn't last long. According to Mr. Oladong, it did not last because um, of COVID-19. It was launched in 2018 and then a year after COVID-19 happened. And also, um, when we spoke to him, he also said that after the launch, there has not been much communications about how the initiative will push through. And um, But uh, two days, two or a few days after, we could see that one of his, um, one of his partners in the media group has, has um, emailed us a story to, has emailed a story in in Kabalao, uh, with uh, that stated official Chinese government line that um, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Benedict, uh, you're going along the lines of the influence again of China. I mean, there was an increase, right, of illegal online gambling links to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, with your investigations, uh, some of that was enabled by prominent Palauans, right, like two former presidents, Johnson Tori Biong and Tommy Edmund Gessel. Are they actually being held accountable? Um. After the after the investigation, there was not um, there was not much talk about what uh, what accountability about um, on the former um, presidents. But you know, our investigation last year um, is not saying that um, that they it committed any wrongdoing, but that the investigation so that the, that there was a push for there was a Chinese efforts push in Palau, but this is through um, through forging business Chinese business people forging relationship with uh, members of the prominent elite in Palau because as you know Palau is only is among the few countries in the world that has diplomatic relationship with Taiwan, and it also has a, um, a compact of free association relationship with with the United States, and that means um, there is no Chinese embassy in Palau, and so the influence will come in the form of. Um, Cultivating, cultivating relationship with the prominent elite, and you know, in our investigation last last year, uh, that was um, uh, that was with um, the former president Justin Terbiong, and some of the business people have also had also relationship with the former president Tommy Remesau. And in this um, in this year's in this year's investigation, um, that. That relationship was formed with um, the publisher of Chabela. Yeah, with the law enforcement or even the Palawan government, have they done anything, though, about these alleged criminal activities? Do you believe they're turning a blind eye? 
Um, according to the law enforcement, um, when we talked to them last time, and also even the president, President uh, Sarangalwips has openly said after the story was uh, published, after the OCCRP story was published last year, that um, the Palawan government is doing something like it ha is it's trying to strengthen its border security system to help check um, visitors' names coming into Palau. And it also has, you know, it also has an undesirable alien list. And, and in that undesirable alien list are um, those online gambling workers who were um, arrested and deported in 2000 in between 2019 and 2020 because they were involved in online gambling operation and then they were working in Palau without a uh, proper working permit and then they the president has also mentioned about applying for Interpol membership and you know Palau is constantly working with the United States authorities and other partners like Australia and Taiwan to secure its borders. Thank you for that, Bernadette. I want to just uh, wrap up here and ask, look, Palau is not the only Pacific nation that China obviously wants to exert their influence into. It seems a very much a battleground for the Pacific. What do you think needs to happen, though, for our Pacific nations to not feel so threatened by China, or do we actually need their relationship? Um, you know, my my job is to my job is a, a reporter and not a policy person. But um, you know, um, I, I think relationship with China is very important. Same as the um, the Pacific nations relationship with the United States, Australia, and other countries. But you know, um, and this is from hearing from from other colleagues and people in Palau and me um, covering the area for more than two, de two decades. And I think what, what needs to happen is uh, sovereignty of this island should be respected and not be used by major powers in their geopolitics. Um, you know, the islands, nations like Palau, they are remote and they have fewer resources and and, pe and people, they have pure resources and people, and they, they strive to de develop their economy. Um, they, and it should be seen that way, and help should, should come their way in that form, you know, build and develop their economy. Um, thank you for that, Bernadette. I just want to say thank you for your time. Salamat uh, bo, and appreciate uh, you being on the show this morning. Thank you. Bye. Uh, that, bye. <laughs> that was Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project Lead Reporter, Bernadette Carrion. Stay tuned because up next it is our news wrap with producer Carl Evans. This is Pacific Beat. Days Like These, the Pacific is a program about those days that go spectacularly wrong or go brilliantly right. The best days, the worst days. One Pacific person with one story about the day when everything changed. It's about the risks we take and the decisions we make. Chance encounters, secrets revealed, sometimes funny, sometimes scary, sometimes both, but always the best story you'll hear all week. Tune in to Days Like These, the Pacific, Tuesday mornings at 9.30 on ABC Radio Australia. Hold the front page! 
It is that time again where we have producer Carl come through and share what the latest is on our news wrap. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Aggie. Happy Tuesday to you. Yeah, thank you. There is definitely a couple of stories we want to get through. I believe two men have actually been charged for allegedly trying to smuggle drugs from Vanuatu to Australia. Yeah, that's right. So both men uh, had charges mentioned in court yesterday after 247 kilograms of cocaine was seized from a yacht moored in Townsville in in, uh, Australia's far north Queensland. Uh, The drugs were seized by the Australian Federal Police and and the Australian Border Force, uh, who say the drugs actually had a street value of $61 million. Uh, In a statement released yesterday, it was revealed the men aged 55 and 44 were arrested in their apartment on Thursday in Cam. Uh, and police alleged the pair had actually travelled to Townsville from Canberra back in May to recover the drugs, uh, which were hidden inside the yacht's hull, uh, which police actually had to access with heavy machinery. Uh, they also say one of them threw a backpack worth $300,000 with cash in it off a balcony when police knocked on their door in Canberra. Uh, the pair have since been extradited to Brisbane, uh, where those court proceedings have begun. I'm wondering, is that an ongoing investigation, though? Yes, uh, police have confirmed uh, that it is. Uh, in the statement released yesterday, they, it, while it had a lot of detail, it didn't exactly say how the drugs got from Vanuatu to Australia, like who, who delivered them from that yacht, um, and police did not rule out uh, more arrests. So I imagine that's uh, something they're going to be uh, yeah, keeping a close eye on, given you know, $61 million of street value. That's a, that's, that's a lot of illicit drugs. A bit of money right there. Uh, a New Zealander, though, holidaying in Fiji, has been evacuated home after being run over by a boat while snorkelling. What's happened there? Yeah, a bit of a, bit of a sad one, this one. So the New Zealand Herald uh, is reporting uh, the Kiwi had been on a cruise holiday on board a uh, P&O vessel on uh, Kadavu Island. Uh, he was in a dinghy, uh, sorry, they were in a dinghy, uh, being transported to a snorkeling spot uh, when they were struck by a propeller. Uh, they were then rushed to the Colonial War Memorial Hospital uh, by air, and they were later trans- um, they were later evacuated uh, to New Zealand. No more information, unfortunately, is listed for privacy reasons. However, we do know the investigation uh, into the incident is still ongoing, and the New Zealand High Commission uh, has ma- been made aware of the reports as well. Well, let's hope that is a good outcome. Uh, and Papua New Guinea's men's national cricket team has emerged as a frontrunner to qualify for the next 2020 World Cup. Is that right? Yeah, that is. So uh, they're competing at the moment uh, in the ICC East Asia Pacific Qualifier in Port Moresby this week against three other nations, uh, including Vanuatu, the Philippines and Japan. They currently sit atop the ladder, having won their first two games, beating Vanuatu by nine wickets and the Philippines by, or thrashing the Philippines by 117 runs uh, in their opening two games. And if they win this tournament, they will claim a spot uh, in the men's T20 World Cup uh, held next year in the US uh, and the Caribbean. So they are favourites so far. However, Japan is also undefeated, having won uh, their first two games as well. Well, when do they actually play next? So Japan, will, uh, sorry, PNG will actually face Japan today uh, and they'll also play Vanuatu again tomorrow. Uh, if they win today, you would probably back them to go all the way from there, given I do think the tournament uh, is based on a, on a points points based system so essentially you know the most wins will uh, will, will virtually will get through so yeah hopefully PNG can uh, can go all the way nice Kyle thank you so much again for our news rep today thank you Aggie 
Now to Samoa's government and its leader, Fia Mayor Naomi Mata'afa, was ushered into power two years ago. After defeating Tuila Epasailele Maria Lengaoi, who served as the country's Prime Minister for more than 22 years. The people of Samoa had high hopes for Fia Mayor and her government had bold plans. But as Adele Fruin reports from Samoa, some say the sheen is starting to wear off. I'm here outside Samo's government building where cars are driving past and it's morning rush. We're talking to residents of the capital up here to find how they're feeling about the political situation here. Hey, I'm Sina Toma. I'm a projects officer. At the moment, the government is doing good, but since they are new to the to the politics and so so I'm pretty sure they need a lot of improvements on how things work their way. I'm Prince Ba'a, like my name is Prince Ba'a, I'm 21 years of age. I think that they're doing fine, just fine. My name is Teresa. I think the government should put more focus on some of the things that matter most to our people, such as the high cost of living. We are struggling with the increase in prices for some of the goods or products available. When Fiamme and her fast party stormed to power in 2021, she defeated Tula At the time of the election, he was the world's second longest serving prime minister. Samoans had not experienced political change for a long time, and they had not had a female leader before. According to Nanai Dr. Yatiyati, a senior lecturer at Victoria University's School of History, Philosophy, Political Science and International Relations, the government's performance has been judged by the policy platform it ran on. I, I guess the government's always judged by the policy platform that they run on, um, especially if they don't have a track record in the country already and FAST doesn't have a track record. And so based on that policy platform, they did promise a lot of economic prosperity, um, stronger rule of law. Um, and on both those fronts, um, two years is probably too short a time to tell whether they've really achieved what they've set out to do. He added that the last election was very different compared to previous years. It was kind of different from the way that Samoan politics usually ran, which was based on what had been achieved thus far, as opposed to uh, setting out a policy platform into an indefinite future which is what we kind of got with the first party at the last election. So I guess it's now time to see whether they can deliver on those promises or not. For former Prime Minister Tula Ipa, the people of Samoa have been disappointed from the start. The government came in and wasted all its time uh, looking for the wrongs that we did. Up to now, they're still trying to find what. Tuila Epa says that funds were set aside specifically for investigations of his former administration rather than government work on what really mattered. Half a million was uh, set aside for uh, uh, a special audit, forensic audit, to be conducted. Up to now, that half a million was never spent. Another half a million has been uh, provided in the current budget. But the question is, why is it that they haven't launched an investigation? And is the money still there? In response, the government says the tenders board was not satisfied to have one firm carry out the forensic audit. This led to them having to re-tender the project.
in a core election promise. The Fast Party also pledged to allocate 51 million tala, or 27.7 million Australian annually, to 51 constituencies for development services. The policy attracted a lot of attention during the pre-election period, and experts say it contributed to the Fast Party's election win. However, according to the opposition, that promise is yet to be fulfilled. The stupidity of the whole thing is many, particularly our constituencies of the HRPP, have been discriminated against. Even my own constituency will receive, up to now, only the first 200,000. And their constituencies have received uh, the first 200,000, then the 150,000, then the 425,000. They have tried to make as difficult as possible the release of funds for our constituencies. But for their constituencies, no, no problem. Pacific Beat made several attempts to contact Prime Minister Fumier to respond to the claims and to defend her government. But all were unsuccessful. Samoan academic Nanai says two years is too short to tell whether a new government has achieved what it set out to do. And the policy platform that FAST ran on was really ambitious and they made a lot of promises. So if the people of Samoa want to hold them accountable, then they may want to just go back and look at their policy manifesto uh, before the last election and just to see how much of that has been uh, fulfilled, how much looks like it's going to be fulfilled and how much is probably going to be scrapped. That was Samoan academic Dr. Iati Iati ending that report from Adele Fruin in Samoa. Up next, we'll be crossing live to Samoa to get more on the latest from there. I'm Aggie Dubon and this is Pacific Beat. Well, French President Emmanuel Macron may be the highest profile visitor to the region this week, but he's just one of the many prominent foreign officials in the Pacific. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be in Tonga on Wednesday, while U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is in Papua New Guinea tomorrow. Another White House delegate, Doug Emphoff, uh, the husband of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, landed in Samoa yesterday. His official title is the second gentleman, like the first lady, but a man. And second, because he's the partner of the vice president, not the president. The visit is part of America's push to deepen its diplomatic and economic ties to the Pacific. So joining us from Apia to discuss the visit is Alex Rini, the editor of Samoa Observer. With that, I say maloli soi for Alex, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Aggie. Appreciate your time, Alex. Look, the interest in the Pacific is pretty high right now, uh, with officials coming from all over to again deepen their diplomatic ties. What is the second gentleman doing while he's there in Samoa? Oh, well, um, he was actually only only here for five hours, actually. Um, uh, the, uh, got into uh, Faleolo International Airport at 11.30 a.m. yesterday. Um, and he was on the flight out of uh, Samoa at around just after 3, 4 p.m. Uh, Samoa local time yesterday afternoon. Um, he did have the opportunity to um, to meet up with the acting prime minister, uh, Tuala Bonifacio, and um, as well as uh, 
uh, a non-government organization that's doing a lot of work in uh, empowering uh, women locally uh, before getting on the plane to fly back to the U.S. Can I ask, uh, Alex, with his visit, though, across the Pacific, you know, it's basically a geopolitical contest for influence, right, between U.S. and Australia and others on one side uh, and China on the other. But where does Samoa sit in that contest? Is it trying to balance between the two sides? Yeah, well, I think the uh, the current government is trying to play its cards right um, in terms of uh, keeping uh, keeping the U.S. and its partners, um, you know, as, as, as development partners in in uh, in the major social economic um, aspects of of the programs that it's trying to roll out to its people, while also keeping um, China um, close as as a, as, a, as a partner as well. Um, so yeah, um, I think they're taking the middle ground at the moment. And um, I think uh, if you were to uh, uh, Prime Minister Fiamme has been is a strong uh, uh, champion of of always speaking through the forum and uh, letting the forum uh, speak on behalf of the uh, of the region. So um, yeah, she's taking the middle ground. Uh, that's the way we see it. Mm. Uh, what's interesting though is the White House, right? They've also committed to placing an ambassador there uh, in Samoa. This is like for the first time in fifty-two years. Have you got anything? Uh, I suppose the latest on that. Yes. Um, oh, well, we do know that the announcement was made on the 4th of July celebrations uh, here in Samoa early, early this month, uh, when the American ambassador based in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, uh, made the official announcement that there will be a resident ambassador uh, for the U.S. Uh, based here in, uh, in Apia. Um, and I think looking at the way things, things are going, I think um, there, there was a certain expectation uh, from uh, from the Samoa government that that would be the direction that the U.S. would would head, and the official announcement was finally made um, early this month. Thank you for that, Alex. I want to actually try now to pivot to another important topic uh, that's been coming up quite a bit there in Samoa with cryptocurrency. Now, I believe there's been calls for Mulipola and Rosa Ale Molio'o, uh, Samoa's finance minister, and also cabinet minister Laoli uh, Leaotia Schmidt's resignation over their lack of transparency with efforts to somehow try and make Samoa a crypto finance centre for Chinese tourism. When I believe Samoa's economy is quite small and its financial systems are underdeveloped. Is that rightly so or not? Oh, well, um, the whole, uh, there was a launching, uh, which uh, we did not get to know of um, in terms of us, um, the media. Uh, but um, the government did release a statement uh, mid last month, uh, denying any, any connections to the launching of the three companies in Hong Kong. Um, there were reports, and in, in fact, we did also get to see pictures of Minister Munipola um, at the at the official launching. But she has come out uh, with a statement saying that uh, her presence at the launching was in no way um, a sanction or uh, approval of of the uh, the government's involvement in the in the whole uh, in the three companies, including the cryptocurrency company. I do believe we just recently had uh, another piece from one of our reporters there in Samoa uh, where people are of Samoa are asking whether she really has fulfilled her promises. Uh, she, it looks like she's doing more damage control within her cabinet. Is, is that how you see it? Um, are we talking about the Prime Minister? Yes, with Fia Mayor. Do you feel she is doing more damage control within uh, the government there with her ministers considering this cryptocurrency issue? Oh, yeah. 
And, um, and again, this, it's not only the cryptocurrency issue. Um, I think the whole month of June um, has seen a whole lot of other uh, controversies that, that has been connected with uh, a number of hair cabinet ministers. And we go back to the uh, to the kite runner story uh, when uh, a boat came in from American Samoa, breaching uh, a number of immigration uh, laws of Samoa, uh, which was connected to two or two cabinet ministers. Um, and then that was just uh, I think two weeks before the whole uh, Hong Kong uh, saga was uh, came out in the press uh, with the three companies launching in Hong Kong. Um, so there were a number of issues. Uh, Besides that, besides the cryptocurrency issue, and yes, I think uh, we've also been getting indications that she is uh, on damage control. Um, she she actually made a statement in Parliament uh, last month to uh, to point out that she did not uh, endorse the uh, the actions of uh, some of her cabinet ministers' involvement in some of these controversies, and she is taking a, a hard line uh, to address some of these issues. And finally, just to some local news there in Samoa, uh, Alex, to drones. I believe to a prison, due to a prisoner's death, the Office of Ombudsman has found that there aren't enough correction officers uh, to man the labour zones. I mean, how realistically will these drones actually improve uh, the conditions there at Tanumalala Prison? Oh, <laughs> we did have a chat with the uh, with the Deputy Police Commissioner, Lewatawa uh, Samuelu Afamasang. Um, he did uh, mention to us um, that um, it was actually part of an ombudsman uh, recommendation following the um, the death of one of the uh, prisoners um, at the Tanumalala prison. Um, the key, the issue for the uh, for the police and for the ministry um, is finance. So um, he said right now um, they, he thinks that they have everything covered. Um, they would need uh, a lot of funding to to go down that path in terms of uh, using drones to monitor prisoners. So he doesn't see that happening immediately, but maybe something for the future. Yeah, look, uh, we appreciate the time that you've given to give us those local stories, uh, Alex. So, fafataitele love for your time this morning. Thanks, Eggy. No worries. Alex Rini, editor of Samoa Observer. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Pacific Beat. Uh, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time, but I'll be back at 6 a.m. PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next, followed by Jacob Maguire on Nisha Daily. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubol. Thanks for your company here on Pacific Beat.